Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Wrap, brought to you by Michigan Medicine Headlines. I'm Jeremy Fowles with the Department of Communication. And I'm Jeremy's favorite co-host. I didn't know that. This is my first time. Today, we're going to be talking about Pride Month, mental health, and more. Uh, but before we get to that, we must implore you to go back and get caught up on any uh, any of the past episodes of The Wrap that you may have missed, including the most recent episode that gave you an inside look at the Office of the Staff Ombuds. You can find the shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any other podcast posting platform. Episodes are also included on the Michigan Medicine YouTube channel as part of the headlines week in review. On that note, let's bring in our guests, LJ Brazier, a of chaplain with the Spiritual Care Department, Nicole Figueroa, a nurse leader for resilience and well-being in the Office of Counseling and Workplace Resilience, and Jack Marsden, a clinical social worker with care management in 4B in the adult hospital. LJ, Nicole, Jack, welcome and welcome to the RAP podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. <laughs> so June is Pride Month and we just uh, celebrated Mental Health Awareness Month back in May. Uh, we know that people who identify as LGBTQ plus often face mental health challenges. What are some of the resources available to colleagues here at Michigan Madison in this regard? I love this question, um, but also I like love the opportunity to talk about sort of what's the, the behind it. Um, yeah, folks who are LGBTQI definitely face a lot of mental health challenges. Also, so does everyone. Um, you know, we, it's hard to be human. Like it's hard to grow up in families and cultures and then become an adult in another family and another culture. Um, it's hard to like cope with the world that is just full of constant onslaught of media and information and changes. So, um, I don't want to say that like LGBTQI folks have more mental health challenges necessarily than everybody else. I want to say that we all have them. I think that LGBTQI folks have done, sometimes had to um, do a little bit more work to recognize those things, but they're things that are common to all of us. Um, so, uh, you know, having said that, I think um, I also want to point out that, you know, LGBTQI folks in a lot of spaces are, you know, marginalized, minoritized, you know, they're not treated the best. Um, and that's really hurtful. Uh, again, it's not unique to LGBTQI folks at all, um, but it is one aspect of our experience. Um, I also note that you know the kinds of things that sometimes hurt humans the most are what researchers call in-group microaggressions, um, and you know there's an in-group microaggression is something where like you're you have your family, you have your culture, you have your church, you have your community. And those people who you think should know you and love you best are actually the ones hurting you. And those, those hurts hurt the worst. Um, and so in my work with folks um, in spiritual care, you know, I see this in terms of LGBTQI folks growing up in religious communities and having those religious communities say things like, oh, well, we have this really loving God who loves everyone and is really merciful and really gracious and will forgive all kinds of sins and transgressions, except for you, queer person. You know, like, it's okay if, like, this guy cheats on his wife and this guy abuses his children and this guy seeks profit. Like, all of that can be forgiven. But, like, if you're a queer person, not you. And it doesn't make sense um, because it's like, well, the God I was taught to believe in, like, forgives everybody else, why not me? Or, you know, the God that I was taught to believe in says that, like, I am wonderfully and fearfully made. 
you know, it says that God knit me together in my mother's womb. So like, who are you to say that God knit me together incorrectly? And so we see folks having these like very good um, existential uh, questions related to um, the religious tradition in which they grew up. Um, and yet their faith community, who they love and who they think loves them is saying like, you're bad. God made a mistake on you. You know, you are incorrect about your relationship with God. Those kinds of hurts really hurt the deepest. Um, so that is an experience, an aspect of sort of the mental health struggles of some folks who are LGBTQI, again, not only LGBTQI folks, because I think we see this too with like cis women and cis men. Um, I think a lot, you know, within my religious tradition, there's a woman called Beth Moore, and she's a um, Southern Baptist lady. She's always been this very prominent religious teacher. And she's recently over the years um, talked more and more mm -hmm. about the um, abuses and microaggressions toward women in our religious tradition and has sort of said, like, this is not correct. Um, this is not who we are. This is not God. This is not how we should be treating women. And so, you know, she's having a very similar experience. She's not an LGBTQI person. But she's having that experience of, you know, I grew up in this religious community that teaches me about this kind of God and they're acting this other kind of way um, that does not really reflect the God that they are trying to teach me about. Um, so I think that's one of the aspects, you know, of, of LGBTQI folks' mental health that I think a lot about. Um, and resources for that, um, you know, I would love to say that like every chaplain is, every religious leader is safe to talk to about this, but we know that's not true. Um, uh, but I'm around and there are a lot of good organizations and there's a lot of great books out there. And there are a lot of open and affirming faith communities um, that we do really work on keeping a robust list of. Um, and there's even some of them that show up at Pride events um, locally. So I think, you know, there are places to go um, to find your religious tradition um, held um, and honored in a way that also holds and honors you as a person. Yeah, I think when we think about, um, you know, when we think about like mental health care, I think, I think sometimes people kind of see it as like this really, like, it's kind of this separate, this separate part of me, like, okay, like everything that's going on inside of my brain is kind of like separate from, um, you know, like, like, so, okay, you know, it's, it's, it's my mental health and it's not really connected to, to kind of anything else. But I, I think what we know is that, um, mental health care and like, and like mental health is, it's, it's all like contextually bound. Right. So like, it's, it's all, um, you know, depending on like what your social context is or your medical context or, you know, what your kind of family or cultural upbringing is going to be like, those are all going to be aspects that are important on kind of your, your, your mental and emotional and spiritual well-being, you know, too, like it's all kind of interconnected. And so I think when we're talking about like mental health care for, you know, LGBTQ folks, um, you know, I think, um, I think, I think it's important for providers to have like um, and, and what LJ is saying is that like, yeah, like, you know, being human is hard. Absolutely. Like we all kind of face, you know, our unique challenges. And I also think that like some folks who, um, you know, their, maybe their, their families or their providers don't have that same level of like awareness or acceptance. And like, you kind of bring, you know, you come up in a, um, in a culture or you're, you're seeking care in a health system where, you know, um, you have, you know, you have fears about like reasonable fears about like how you're going to be accepted or is, is, you know, um, are, are they kind of going to kind of, kind of understand, um, where I'm coming from or, you know, my, my embodiments, my gender identity, you know, my sexuality kind of whatever. I mean, and, and it's like, it's this idea of minority stress, you know, like, so yeah, like absolutely. Like when you, 
when you are a mar you know you exist as a marginalized person in a in a in a community in a culture in a country that um, doesn't see you as having the same level of like humanity as like other other types of people like yeah that's going to have an impact on your mental health right and I think that there are some things that you can do as an individual um, one hundred percent and I think a lot of the big work is like trying to make sure that. Um, you know, some of that advocacy is happening on on systems levels, you know, on, on broader levels to China, trying to like over time kind of change that culture, right? So, so 100%, I think that it, like, if, if you're a mental health care provider, or you're, you're a medical health care provider, you should, you, you know, you need to have, um, you need to have some education and some awareness on like some of the unique, um, uh, just unique struggles that queer and trans folks face, you know, because they do have, they do have concerns that are going to be separate from from cisgender or from, you know, heterosexual populations, for sure. Like you should, you should have an awareness of those things um, and can be able to speak to those kind of like sensitively and have that kind of be a part of your lens. Like these are things that I'm, I'm kind of keeping an eye out for. Um, and just always having, you know, that, that recognition too, that, um, you know, if, if, if you are, are coming up in a, um, you know, in a, in a family or a cultural community environment where, the thing that you are is not accepted, you know, like you're that, that of course is going to have, uh, you know, an impact on, on, you know, your coping, you know, like, of course, you know, it, it couldn't, it couldn't not. So I think, I think in terms of resources, you know, we can, we can get into that. You know, I, I do think that U of M does have some, um, uh, you know, like they, I think we have a really good um, kind of like a, um, like a LGBTQ plus kind of affirming like provider list, you know, where if you, you know, where where providers can independently kind of sign on and say like yep like I've you know I, I want to kind of put myself out there as someone that has some awareness about about queer and trans issues or or I kind of you know and, and at, at least kind of signing on to the fact that like I'm an ally like I think that's a great place to kind of um to to refer to um you know and and of course you know we could we can talk about you know how to how to access um you know mental health care um generally and then how to you know some tips on maybe how to find a provider that's kind of sensitive to to um you know to to queer and trans issues um but anyways those, that's my thoughts on that <laughs> i think that um jack bringing up the within our resources in the institution the um, lgbtq provider list is a really foundational place to kind of take a look at at least what, where we know providers who have um, identified that they um, have the passion and the skills to approach the queer experience. Um, I think I'd be remiss to not also kind of articulate that um, while mental health is always something we're thinking about for all individuals, there is something about our intersecting identities in a queer community that creates vulnerabilities for us and in particular in our current kind of socio-political spaces where what we see is messaging around reduction of rights, um, restrictions of rights, and at times violence, how we're more at risk, particularly in this day and age um, in the queer community. Um, and one thing, you know, my background is, is child psych. I spent the vast majority of my, my career on the Nyman family unit for child and mental health and well-being, and um, the crisis around youth mental health is really something that's huge. And you know, trans youth in particular being at extremely high risk of death by suicide, and something our community should be aware of. 
Um, and I know that we think about that a lot. We are we have a zero suicide initiative that's happening within Mott, and one of the things we're focusing on is um, how, with vulnerable populations like our trans youth, our queer youth, how are we assessing them at, at, at maybe a higher rate to assure that we're getting resources quickly for them? Um, and I think it's really important for us as healthcare providers um, to really understand that lived experience in a deep way. Um, and understand the kind of impacts that seeing um, somewhat of that minority stress, seeing laws and and kind of just the overall context and, and discussions and how uh, that puts increased stress on our, our feelings of safety and oftentimes our patients and families' feelings of safety as well. So why it's so, I'm so grateful that we're talking about it because um, at times just having a platform to speak about the lived experience that we all may experience have ourselves, but also what we see in our community that we serve. I feel like this gets to some of the practicalities too that you're talking about, um, Nicole, is that, you know, we have a support group for parents of, you know, trans and gender nonconforming children and adults. Like we have support groups for trans and gender nonconforming adults. We have access to counselors within the Office of Counseling and Workplace Resilience here um, for our staff who are pretty like wonderfully uniformly like open and affirming and delightful people and who are really helpful gateways um, to accessing community resources. Um, and then I think just as evident, you know, just from us being here on this panel, you know, we have people at all levels of clinical work and administration who are um, fellow LGBTQI folks, um, and just incredible allies. Um, and so I think just for our staff, knowing that like, you know, if you're new here or if you've been sort of invisible and stealth for a long time, whatever it is, like you have people here at all levels of the organization and the community. Um, and that's one of the greatest resources I think we have to offer. Thank you, thank you. Um, we're gonna skip one of the questions because you covered so much of it as we're moving forward. So I'm gonna go to, uh, while we may lump some of these groups together, there are clearly differences within the community. What are some specific issues faced by people who identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender as you covered with the suicide risk for transgender youth? Within a group, there's always differences. And I think, when we have a lens of intersectionality, we can understand how being in groups that are um, typically can be minoritized or can have feelings of being othered, the more intersection identities that we have, the more we feel the pain of the systems that are not kind of built to provide care for us. And so, you know, a lot has been focused on I would say the trans youth and the trans experience, non-binary experience, gender kind of diverse experience and of the vulnerabilities in our community around that. Um, and I think that when we've seen actual kind of overarching LGBTQIA queer community kind of risk of suicide, it's heightened related to others who are not part of that group. And then even within our group, of um, LGBTQIA queer individuals. Um, we know that people with um, gender identity, transgender, non-binary folks have a higher risk of suicide and death by suicide, particularly our trans youth. 
And so I think it's really important for us to understand that and also understand when people say that gender affirming care is life-saving or maybe not talking about physical life-saving, we're talking about the soulful saving of someone's life and what happens when people feel um, not seen, marginalized, and the real damage that happens when we say that doesn't exist and you don't exist and how that is a direct reflection on how people feel about themselves. And so they've done studies actually in, in people in states who have affirming laws, their risk of suicide isn't decreased really uh, because the national conversation is there. And so you always are living in fear that something's going to happen. And so this constant kind of fear uh, compounds the mental health effects um, that is felt within our community. And so there is different experiences. And I would say even for those, you know, I identify as a lesbian, my experience as a lesbian, as a cisgender woman who identifies as a lesbian, um, I would say that my experience is different than other people within within our community. So I have my own experience, but it's really important for us to kind of understand how do we advocate for those who may be more vulnerable um, in our community. So I, I guess the question, and, and any of you, you can feel free to, to, to pick up on this and, and maybe Jack, maybe you're in a good position to help us on this one. What advice would you give to people who are facing abuse or trauma in their personal lives because of sexual orientation or gender identity? I, I guess just kind of speaking, um, you know, generally, right? Like not just specifically to colleagues or specifically to to patients, but just that um, I, I think that what we're really trying to touch on here is like we 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 don't really want um, there's you know there's nothing wrong with you, right? Like we really like I think we, we can kind of talk about specific concerns faced by you know, queer and trans, um, you know, populations that are, I think are like, you know, clinical concern to us as like medical and mental health care providers, like we need to be kind of tuned into these things. And, and I think that unfortunately, you know, a lot of us do have, um, you know, uh, you know, extensive abuse or kind of trauma histories, um, a lot of it kind of related to, um, you know, identity concerns. And um, I, I guess, uh maybe speaking as a human and not necessarily as like a, as a, as a provider, but just that, you know, healing is out there, you know, just a reminder that it's not, you know, that it's not at all about you. It's about, um, it's about things that are a lot bigger than you. And, um, you know, I, I talk a lot with folks about, um, this, uh, this idea of, um, like, um, Of, of just kind of like a radical acceptance and of, of trying to kind of get to this place of, um, uh, you know, being able to be in a direction where you can kind of move your life forward in positive ways. And, and even if you're, you know, even if you're coming from a background that has been really harmful for you and your family was not there in the ways that you needed them to be, or your community was kind of not there for you in ways that you needed them to be, that, um, that community is out there. Um, that is just kind of ready, waiting and ready and waiting to embrace you. Um, there are, um, you know, uh, just a, kind of a reminder for our providers too, that for a lot of times, um, you know, I, I think we think really firmly in terms of like, well, you know, the, like, oh yeah, everything is kind of wrapped up into the nuclear family. And that's kind of how we look at, um, you know, 
were, you know, we, we, we have, sometimes we have, you know, I, we have patients that come in and they've got, you know, it's, it's, it's like, okay, we really, we're looking for your spouse or your, your daughter or something. And that's kind of your, your primary support person. Right. And, and so it's like kind of almost hard for us to have like a lens that's wide enough to like, well, my community might look like, you know, you might, might not necessarily look like that. Like, it, you know, I, I have chosen family, you know, like those are the people that are important to me. Um, and, and I have kind of, you know, I don't have those strong relationships with my with my nuclear family anymore, and and that's okay because I was able to find kind of fulfillment in 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 other people, um, and so, um, you know, I I think that, and also I guess for anyone that has any kind of abuse or trauma history, you know, you're you're not an inherently broken person, you know, like that's that it's 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 not some it's it's not something that um, is is you know, that, that you're not able to kind of continue to kind of move, move your life forward in a positive direction, you know, like that, you know, healing and wellness and like, and fulfillment and contentment are things that like, you are still able to kind of go out and pursue no matter kind of what's happened to you in the past. And so I think a part of that, that's important, um, especially for queer and trans folks is just that, you know, th there are providers that are trained that are out there in communities that are able to, to kind of help you, um, you know, overcome and and kind of come to terms with and process and and move forward in a value direction in your life like there are providers out there that kind of that know how to do that and and sometimes it can be harder you know um well i think just in general right now there's such a a dearth of like mental health providers in comparison to like what the need is you know out there i think it's in the post-covid era it's harder than it's ever been i think to well not maybe that's an exaggeration but it's it's, it's just really hard to you know, lots of providers, mental health care providers have wait lists. And, and so I know that that can be challenging, but there are certainly resources that are out there that, you know, you can, you can connect with mental health care providers that have specific training that can kind of see you for who you are, that you're not going to have to constantly trying to like re-explain things about your identity. Like you're going to be able to say, you know, I'm, I'm intersex or I'm, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm, you know, polyamorous or, you know, whatever. And they're just going to kind of like, they're going to understand that, you know, like, and you're not going to have to constantly feel like you have to justify your own existence before you even get to, you know, start to kind of get to that, some of that healing work. So I guess what I would just say is that community is out there. Healing is out there. There are people out there that are trained that can kind of help you move forward through this and just, you know, you, you are, you are not a bad person because of what happened to you. And, and, um, you know, that, that has everything to do with the environment that you were raised in and not anything to do with, you know, who you, who you kind of inherently are kind of in your, in your soul and in your spirit. So it was a bit long winded, but I, I think I finally got around, to, I think I finally got around to it there. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, as we look at Michigan medicine as a whole and U of M health in our clinical setting, what can leadership do to create a culture that supports mental health for our LGBTQ plus colleagues? I mean, I think, you know, for years, there's been folks that have actually been doing this um, and like really playing the long game of doing this um, and just really um, doing this, what I call kind of ministry of persistent presence, um, you know, being queer people in positions of leadership and just being queer people in positions of leadership. Um, is a powerful, powerful thing. And it doesn't even need to be that, you know, this person in leadership is explicitly doing queer representation. Just by like being a person who does your job well and who excels and who, you know, makes their way into leadership. Like, 
as an LGBTQI person, just that in itself is a really radical act that starts to transform the culture. And just, just being who you are in positions of power and authority is, is a really incredible and transformative act. So, um, you know, I think that's the first one. Um, I also want to sort of, I, this gets back to one of the other questions, um, you know, about how different, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, intersex folks have different kinds of experiences. Um, and Nicole mentioned the idea of intersectionality, um, which is this idea that, you know, we have multiple aspects of our identities related to like our race, our culture, our religion, our gender, our sex, whatever it is. And that, you know, each person has a unique sort of constellation of identities um, that all intersect and affect ourselves, but also affect how the world sees us. Um, and sometimes that means that we actually have a lot of privileges in addition to marginalities. You know, so you could be like a relatively wealthy, relatively powerful, successful um, white person who's also queer trans. And those privileges give you opportunities um, to flourish in your own life and to create space for other queer and trans folks um, and to provide that really powerful representation. Um, but, you know, there's other kinds of intersectionalities too. And one of those is age. And age is really significant within the queer community because we had a sort of generational attrition um, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, you know, huge numbers of people died during the AIDS crisis. And unfortunately of those who died, it was disproportionately queer and trans people. Um, so we have this long and lived history of being um, abandoned by um, public health and um, public health institutions, researchers, medical providers. Um, and that's important to remember, uh, cause for a lot of younger LGBTQI folks, they've grown up not knowing that, um, not, they don't remember that. Um, that was my childhood, right? That was, I remember that, but a lot of, you know, I'm effectively an elder at this point because I remember that. Um, so I never want to pressure older queer and trans folks to do representation. And I never want to pressure older queer and trans folks to like help create space, um, you know, and out themselves. Um, because I know what they have been through. I know the attrition. I know the genocide that they've been through. And I'm not going to pressure them to like be out or do representation or anything like that. However, when they do it, it's life-giving um, and it heals the world. So um that's one of the things I think about in terms of what can leadership do. You know, that's my message to LGBTQI folks in leadership is um, just continue to be there. And if to some extent you can also be out um, and use your privilege uh, to make this place better and safer uh, for our patients and our staff, by golly, please do that. Um, so that's my first message. Um, my second message, I think, is also to uh, folks who uh, we might call allies. And I think there's a lot of folks who are aspirational allies. You know, they want to say they're ally. They want to wear the things. They really want to do a good job, but they don't always know exactly what to do. Um, and then there's folks who just radiate loving kindness. And don't need to call themselves an ally because their actions are so inclusive and transformative. Um, be that person as a leader. Uh, you, 
if you're acting in a way that is inclusive um, and transformative for LGBTQI folks and the organization, you don't need to wear any pins. You don't need to have any Zoom backgrounds. Your actions speak for themselves. Um, and we have a, a few extraordinary folks um, in leadership who are that and do that and um, be like those folks. <laughs> you know, uh, and if you don't know the details of how to act in a way that is inclusive and transformative for LGBTQI folks, ask people. Ask the folks who you work with and who report to you, um, who might be LGBTQI folks. Ask them in private, what can I be doing to support you? And check in on that from time to time. Um, so that would be my other. In LJ, you said it so beautifully. I um, The one thing I would kind of add is, you know, I think, um, I think we have great leadership here. I think we create the context of being queer and trans in this community is one that's aspirational, I believe. And I think that we see that through things like creating HR resources on how to access healthcare within our kind of employee benefits to help with gender affirming care and what's covered under health benefits creating a transitioning guide for from HR around how to do that within our work community. I think just having things like that signals the aspirational experience we want people who are in queer and trans communities to experience. Um, and, you know, I think that if you can be out, it's great. You know, I feel that that's a privilege that I have um, and I feel comfortable doing. And I also know it's been a gift from others who are elder than me, who've kind of blazed that path, who have shown me that it is okay to be me um, and okay to talk about my family system. And I don't think I would um, be where I am today without those previous experiences. And also, um, you know, um, just creating safe space for people. Um, and I think that the more we can have like a global conversation around uh, LGBTQIA, queer experiences, trans experiences on kind of in our DE&I work, the more we kind of discuss that, I think it continues this path that we're trying to create here at uh, Michigan Health. And it's powerful. I think that, you know, it's I don't I think people understand just how powerful it is just some of these aspirational goals for those of us who are in this community um, and just being seen um, and the fact that we can all feel comfortable in our own spaces and selves and that we do belong which is so powerful so uh, when our experience is so much that we aren't maybe we don't belong to be in a community where we do feel like we belong is uh, goes uh, speaks I don't know can't think of the word, but just speaks so beautifully to the actual base priorities of belonging. Uh, and that true belonging is being able to bring ourselves to work and feel vulnerable enough to share our own experiences. So even this opportunity is is um is healing for a kid who grew up in Kentucky and had very interesting experiences as I was experiencing my own understanding of my sexual orientation. So that's beautifully said, Nicole. That that sounds like a completely different podcast that we could catch up with you about. 
I may cry or I may have just been tearful and I'm trying not to make it look like I am. But <laughs> if anybody knows me well, uh, I will cry about certain things. And these are things that I will cry about. So, you know, hopefully don't zoom in too far. Uh. <laughs> we won't. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, LJ, Jack and Nicole for sharing your insights and your feelings and thoughts about um, the LGBTQ health, LGBTQ uh, population and mental health. Uh, if you want to learn more about the events and details in and around the community during Pride Month, visit mmheadlines.org and see our story from May 22nd titled Celebrating Pride Month with Michigan Medicine, Inspiring Health, Equity, and Inclusion. Okay. And with that, LJ, I have to let you know, and Jack and Nicole, thank you once again. You get to sit back and enjoy this next part because LJ, your work here is not done. I know we didn't tell you about this ahead of time, but it's time for the lightning round, which is when we get to ask one of our guests some quick fire questions. So I know the answer is no, but are you ready to go? I mean, yeah, that's totally. All right. So much of today's conversation touches on wellness and well-being. What's the best way that you like to relax after a long day at work? I mean, I have a golden retriever at my feet right now. Um, I work with Anna, the hospital service dog. Um, so, I mean, my favorite thing to do is to like go out during this time of year in the backyard and we do some zoomies and we have some big cuddles. Um, that's pretty high on my list. And so who would you say is your biggest mentor that you've had in your career? Also Anna the dog. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. If we could all be more like golden retrievers, that would be it. Um, okay, for serious humans, um, the first one would be uh, the first like out gay pastors that I ever met, um, April Baker down in Nashville. Um, she was the first person who like a queer, a queer person who I heard preach and I was like, oh my gosh, she knows the Bible really well and she loves the Bible and she loves Jesus. And for like a little Southern Baptist Catholic kid from the South, like those are actually really important things. Um, and, and she's like this delightful like butch lesbian super tall like super commanding and I was just it rocked my world um in traumatic ways that were really good um and so like I would not be here if not for her in that moment again another podcast that we can record about that sure. <laughs> she sounds wonderful uh so the, the big event last week in Detroit was of course the Taylor Swift concert which took over Ford Field what the is swizzle, the, the swizz <laughs> Did you go, or if not, what is the best concert you've ever been to? I didn't make it to the Swizz. I'm so sorry about that, um, but I was there in spirit. Best concert I've ever been to. Oh my gosh, this is gonna age me. Um, so I grew up uh, during the sort of like early days of emo music and <laughs> Um, I grew up in Orlando, which had a lot of really wonderful little venues. Um, and I would say probably like yellow card, uh, in a really small venue in Orlando called the social would probably, um, be real high on my list, but wow, that's an embarrassing fact about me. Big ocean Avenue fan. Finally, yes. as I'm sure, you know, I mean, you don't, <laughs> maybe, maybe you do, maybe you don't. June is national candy month. So what is your favorite candy? Oh man, not a huge, okay. I go through phases of candy, but I'm going to do a little, my office mate slash mentor um, keeps me stocked on Trader Joe's gummies, uh, Trader Joe's fruit gummies. Those are probably pretty high on my favorites list, um, but the sour ones are the best of all. 
All right, you're off the hot seat. Thank you so much, LJ, for playing along. And thank you both to Nicole and Jack for providing such wonderful expertise, tips, and resources for us. We'll post those on the, on the Michigan headlines uh, when we have a chance and informing us so much about our community and ways that our organization can help. Thanks, yeah, Thank you for giving us the opportunity to speak about this, you know, really important topic. So it was a real, a real privilege to be able to do that. We really enjoyed speaking to all of you. You guys touched on some really, really deep topics. And I hope the people who listen to it really appreciate and benefit um, the resources that you have to offer. As a <laughs> reminder, visit mmheadlines.org where you'll find all sorts of stories this week, like the Rogel Pathways Program, Cybersecurity, or the Teddy Bear Story that ran last week. Find all that and much more on mmheadlines.org. All right, Anusha, now it's your turn. Uh, this week, I'm in the pilot seat as our esteemed colleague, Dan Elman, is road tripping to Colorado. Uh, he let me know that he's been there five or six times because you know he likes to brag, but he never visited the Rocky Mountain National Park, which I know is a big disappointment of his. Uh, so where is one landmark that you've never been to, but you really want to check out? Um, I recently checked off the Grand Canyon off my list, so I was very happy about that, but I would love to go to Yosemite. That is a big on the short list of travel plans. You, you, I, you? I, you, you took my answer. Um, <laughs> and I, I've been fortunate to go to the Grand Canyon once. I was very little. I'd love to go back. But you said to me, for some reason, even though I grew up on the West Coast, we never made it to. We got to go to Yellowstone. We got to go to Grand Tetons. But uh, I, I want to see El Capitan. I want to see all the waterfalls. And I, I would love to go there someday. Absolutely. Yep. It's definitely on my short list. <laughs> All right, it's time for this week's weekly trivia contest. This week's question is, what sort of gift does nurse Jen Mile create for pediatric patients in East Ann Arbor? Once again, what sort of gift does nurse Jen Mile create for pediatric patients at East Ann Arbor? You can find the answer in the recent headline story, and once you know it, send it to headlines at med.umich.edu for a chance to win the prize. That is all the time we have for today. Thank you again to LJ, Jack, and Nicole for joining us. And thanks as always to all of our listeners and viewers uh, for everything that you do for our patients, families, and each other. We'll see you next time. <laughs>